Okay, dear friends, Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and uh, I'm glad you're part of the show today. Uh, I just lost one of my callers, and it was painful. Dear Katie was on for so long and uh, lasted through the whole last hour and then disappeared. Maybe she had someplace to go, but I think her uh, question is a good one, and I still have it here. So I'm going to uh, offer a response. Katie, sorry I missed you. Um, but uh, the question that Katie had is, if God is everywhere, would he, wouldn't he also be in hell? But wouldn't that negate the idea that hell is a separation from God? And I, I get it. I get the concern there. All right. So let me talk about two separate things. One is the omnipresence of God, and the other one is the notion of separation from from God, okay? Um, what the omnipresence of God teaches is that God is personally—let uh, me back up, put it this way—God's awareness is present everywhere, okay? So, I'm actually— I'm in a booth right now broadcasting, okay? I am I am in my seat here, but just, you know, four feet away at the corner of the room, I, I, my awareness extends to the edge of this room. Actually, my awareness extends further because I'm aware of Amy through the glass and the bearded beast working the boards and different things going on. So my, my, my physical presence, the presence of my being is, is, more contained or restrained than the than my awareness of things. And so what the scriptures teach is that you cannot run from God. There is no place where his he has not permeated with his awareness. He's everywhere. Okay? Now, it, it, I don't think that means that his being fills up every space, because then his being would be coterminous with the creation. And that's that's actually a different view. That's called either pantheism or panentheism. And that's not our view. We're not saying that God's stuff has just expanded, but that his, his, his awareness, he is present in his awareness, just like I am present in the fully present in my awareness in this room. That's God. You want to go to Sheol, you go to Sheol. Guess what? You're not going to escape God. This is David in Psalms. You're not going to escape God. He's there. Uh, you, you can talk to him. He's aware of you. you can, you're not going to hide from him. You go to the heavens. You go to the depths. You go, no matter where you go, God is there. Okay? That's omniscience, and there might—I'm I'm sorry, uh, omnipresence. And there might be some other more philosophically sophisticated or theologically sophisticated ways of characterizing it, um, but I think that that will do. That's adequate for our purposes here, that the, the, the presence of God is everywhere. That means his awareness, not his substance-filling every space. All right. Now, this then brings us to the other question. 
um, that would mean that God is in hell, which is true, in the sense that He has full awareness of everything happening in hell. As much awareness of it as I do of the paper sitting right here in front of me. Now, I'm perceiving it. I, I don't actually know what the sense of God's omnipresence is. I don't know what it feels like to Him. But it's clear that there's, from the text, that there's no place that we can go from His Spirit. It's the way David characterizes it in other passages like this. Now, Bill Craig, if I understand it right, and this is actually an odd characterization, and he might have just been experimenting a little bit with the notion and thinking it from different angles, which is fine. Uh, but you want to be careful, because it could get you in trouble. But I thought I heard Bill Craig say that God's omnipresence is merely a function of His omniscience. Since God knows everything, then being physically—or not physically, but uh, but being actually—let's use that word—present at something happening doesn't give Him any more information than His omniscience already gives Him. And so it sounds like he's collapsing, collapsing his omnipresence into his omniscience. So if I knew everything that was, every particular particle of everything that was going on in this room perfectly, nothing would be added if I were actually present in this room beholding those things taking place. I think that's his thinking. But classically, the two have been distinct. Omnip omniscience is God. God's knowledge of every true fact, His affirmation of every true pro proposition, different ways to characterize it, and His omnipresence is His omnipresence. It's not talking about His knowledge there, it's talking about His presence, a, a, a kind of the locus of His awareness. And so, since David use, uses the language of location, I, you know, where can I go from your spirit? If I go higher there, I go lower there. Now we can be careful how we characterize the thereness, but the thereness isn't just a knowledge, a propositional knowledge that is adequate for omniscience. I think there's more to it than that. Okay. Now I want to take it one more step. Yes, God would be in hell in that sense, but then as Katie continues, wouldn't that negate the idea that hell is separation from God? All right? <clears throat> and the answer is no, it doesn't negate that. And let's close in prayer. <laughs> the idea of hell being separation from God um, is characterized in one particular passage, and uh, that's in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul is talking about judgment— um, oh, now i got to find it. That will fall upon—oh, yeah, it's actually uh, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And in verse 6, he's talking about judgment. And he says, For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you. The Thessalonians are suffering at the hands of others. And— and Paul is saying, don't worry, God is going to get his just revenge and give relief to you who are afflicted 
and to us also when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So there's relief. Jesus will return, the parousia, the glorious return of Christ. And what's he going to be doing? Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So Paul is not a pluralist. He is not an inclusivist. You disobey the gospel. You ignore, reject Christ. This is what you're facing, judgment. And these, verse 9, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Okay. A um, couple of observations, because this verse 9 of Second Thess chapter 1 takes us right to the point of Katie's question. Um, these who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, verse 8, will pay, verse 9, the penalty of eternal destruction. Now, eternal destruction does not mean annihilation. It means being ruined. It cannot be annihilation, because Paul doesn't stop there with eternal destruction. He gives a spatial characterization of what the, the, the fate of those who are so destroyed. They are away from the presence of the Lord. In other words, the nature of the destruction is to be away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power. Now, you can't be away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power if you don't exist. Things that don't exist are not away from anything. They're just not there. Do you see that? The nature of the punishment, the ruination, if you will, is to be bereft of God. Now, and I put it this way in the story of reality, if we are made for relationship with God, to be with Him, and this is the, the summum bonum, the greatest good, this is the, what we're all about, and, and now even though people who don't know God, they still benefit from the grace of God that He gives to all. And we are removed from that, and there is no grace all has been withheld, and instead of being with God, for whom we were made, we are now without God. We will be ruined for the purpose God made us. And that's going to be hell. Literally and figuratively. But notice the nature of this penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. We, or I should say those who are in this circumstance, are gone from God's relational presence. They are not in His presence in any way that's going to bring benefit to, to them. Now, He is present there. But they gain no benefit from that. He is aware of what's going on. But he is but nothing accrues, nothing good accrues to them in virtue of God's being aware that they're there. God being present in that sense. So God is present to them, but they are not present to God, might be another way of putting it. 
God has an awareness of what's going on, but they are not in His glorious presence, benefiting from fellowship with Him. They are removed from every trace of grace. That's why it's referred to as destruction, because it was not the way God originally intended us to be. We were meant for a certain end, a certain telos, and that telos is not fulfilled. Therefore, we are ruined for that end. That is the destruction in view, and that end is utter and complete aloneness and no grace. So I think in that sense, God can be present in hell, but not present for or to those in hell in any sense that they gain any benefit from it at all, or from him at all. Okay? And Katie, um, again, I apologize I wasn't able to get you on earlier, and uh, it would have been nice to chat. I think we've chatted before. Is that right, Amy? Yeah, we have. So uh, hopefully you hear the show and get that response. So now, uh, let's see, maybe we'll take a couple of uh, our open mic calls here. Um, huh. Okay, let's. I, I have a question here from Susan on prayer. All right. And uh, I'm sorry about giving you the um, short shrift here on the time. I don't see it. <laughs> Next pain. Uh, it's on page two on my list. There you go. There you go. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Susan. Hey, Greg. My name is Susan. I have a question about prayer. If a lot of people are praying for the same prayer request, is that request more likely to be answered than if just one person is praying for that same thing? For example, if I am praying for a job, is it more likely God will answer my prayer if 50 of my friends are praying with me as opposed to just me praying about it? Thank you. I look forward to your answer. <laughs> uh, thank you, Susan. I'm chuckling because I look forward to my answer, too. I look forward to an answer. <laughs> well, I have an answer for you that I think is sound, but I need to preface it by saying that I do not understand the calculus of prayer. Think of all the people who pray, God save the Queen. All the Brits who make this request of God. Now, one might say, well, that's just not really a prayer. And I think in many cases, probably in most cases, it's not a real prayer. It is a, it is a display of respect for the Queen and well wishes, but I don't think most people are thinking to themselves that, that God, will you save the Queen in some way? Okay, so I don't, I don't think that falls into that category, but there certainly are circumstances where lots of people are praying and enjoying to pray. Pray for one another. Uh, we, have, we have examples in the book of Acts where people are praying in groups. When Peter is in, in, imprisoned, um, you have everyone praying fervently. And what's kind of crazy about that circumstance is that—and I, I got this particular point from John MacArthur, and it's a good one. It's many years ago that he said this. Here they are praying. Peter's in prison. An angel comes in, takes the chains off Peter, the door opens, he walks out, Peter thinks he's dreaming. Once he's out, he realizes he wasn't dreaming, he's no longer in prison. 
So he goes to the place where the disciples were. Maybe this is the upper room where they had the Last Supper. He's knocking on the door, and one of the maidservants comes to answer the door, and she sees it's Peter, the same one they've been praying for as a group. So I draw from that that the idea of praying as a group is better than just one person praying, or else they wouldn't be doing it. It's exemplified there. Um, so, but, but what was interesting about this is that she doesn't open the door right away. For her excitement, she runs back to the praying group and says, Peter is at the door. A translation, your prayers have just been answered. And the group says, these are the disciples, right? The group says, no, he isn't. She said, yes, he is. And they say, no, he isn't. That's his ghost. (laughs) And the observation that John MacArthur was making is that there wasn't much faith being demonstrated in the prayers that were being prayed. Because it's kind of like, pray for rain and don't bring an umbrella, right? My dad used to say that. Oh, ye of little faith. Here they are praying up a storm together through the night, and then when Peter shows up, they don't believe he's really there. And of course, finally they go out, they take him in, they realize the prayers have been answered. But doesn't that give an indication that there there is merit, and maybe I could just say more effectiveness, when people pray as a group? Um, the Scripture says, pray for one another. And there are lots of examples of that, where it's happening and where there's exhortations to pray for each other. Now, I, I, I imagine this exhortation is given because more people praying for each other, maybe even on a particular issue, just seems to be more effective in moving God. But I don't know how that works. This is what I mean when I say I don't understand the calculus of prayer. I don't know how that adds up. I don't know. The temptation is to think of bits of prayer as having some kind of, for lack of a better term, monetary value. All right? So let's just say every 30-second request is worth a quarter. (laughs) Let's just make it even money, a dollar. All right? And if you if you pray for two minutes, that's four dollars worth. If you have if you have ten people praying for two minutes together, that's forty dollars worth. And so you're you're pumping up the kind of this spiritual account with your prayers, and we don't know how much uh what money, prayer money <laughs> currency we need to get over the top and get an answer. Maybe it's 400 bucks, and so we just—the more we pray and the longer we pray, that those numbers keep adding up, and then boom, we go over the top, and we get our prayer answered. So there's a a kind of a, a characterization of the calculus of prayer, or one way it may work, but I don't know that it works that way, because that's somewhat of a mechanistic um, characterization, isn't it? That if you put enough quarters into the machine, pretty soon you're going to get your soda pop or whatever. And C.S. Lewis has pointed out, God is not a machine. We are not trying to 
put quarters in a machine to get a product such that if we just do so many of these, a number of these a certain way, it's going to get us what we're after. This, by the way, is what troubles me about much of Roman Catholic prayer, is because it's that way. If you say 10 Hail Marys and 10 Our Fathers and one rosary or whatever it is, and I was raised Catholic, so I know at least back then how this works and worked, and I think it still works somewhat that way. We, we're kind of racking up the prayer credits, and that's going to get us something. So many days out of purgatory or whatever, it'll get us an indulgence or whatever. I, I don't mean at all to be disrespectful. I'm just characterizing the way this works. So they have a, there's a certain metric. I, I don't have any reason to believe that prayer works that way, quite the same way, not me- mechanistically like that. It's certainly not the way those prayers are prayed. It's a Hail Mary, which is, I think, a, a doctrinally unsound prayer to Mary, and then you have the, the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus, just before he gives it, says, don't pray these things in repetition. That's what the pagans do, thinking that by the more times they pray, they're going to get their answer. So it doesn't work that way, but I don't know how it works, except for to say it does make a difference praying together. But how, I don't know. That's my, that is my own frustration with prayer. And Lewis's point is, you're not working a machine, you're making a request of a person. And that person responds to different things for different reasons based on different issues. And, you know, maybe if I had a clear understanding for how the spiritual realm works, that would help. You know, David, or rather Daniel, you read in Daniel, he is beseeching God with a prayer over a long period of time, And when the angel, Michael, I think, finally appears to him, he says, well, you started praying a while ago, and I started on my journey here to you, but I was opposed. And so there was some kind of spiritual conflict. He was opposed by another dark, fallen angel, and there was apparently some kind of battle, struggle that ensued. And it was the perseverance of Daniel in prayer that seemed to be a decisive factor in that struggle so that the angel could uh, come to Daniel and give the revelation he did. I think this is in, this might be in, Revela- in rather Daniel chapter 9. I'm not sure. But certainly that event is well documented in Daniel. So that tells you something is going on in the spiritual realm, that our prayers are affected, affecting, and sometimes if we stop too soon, then uh, maybe, maybe that you know, has a negative impact in the spiritual realm. I don't know. It's clear also when you, listen, you read the uh, Lord's Prayer that Jesus is kind of giving an outline of a prayer, but notice that He's, he's just—he's giving simple requests. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. These are simple prayers. I read a wonderful um, short work by Kevin DeYoung on uh, the Lord's Prayer, and this is one of the things that I, it was a great takeaway for me from that book, is that just trying to say pray the same prayer— a bunch of different ways with a bunch of different words isn't the kind of thing that's going to make the difference. The prayers that we see, um, you know, in the in Scripture are, are short and to the point. 
And it seems like this is what Jesus is recommending in the Lord's Prayer. And so I don't labor. When there are troubles in my own life, I have friends that I'm asking for corporate prayer regarding that issue, because I think corporate prayer makes a difference. But I don't know how much difference. And sometimes I have lots of people praying about some things that are really a big deal to me, and they're not self-interested or self selfish prayers. You know, James says you you ask and you don't have because you ask with wrong motives. That's not the nature of these prayers, these requests. But but you know, and 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 it, it seems like even though there are multiple people that are praying, it hasn't made a difference. Then there are other times we pray about things as a team, say about stand to reason things, and some amazing things happen. So. I don't know. We we are to persevere in prayer. We are to be devoted to prayer. And clearly that includes groups praying, because that ma- that makes a difference. That matters. But how it matters, I don't know. But Paul says in, I think, 1 Timothy, be devoted to prayer, keeping alert to it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And the idea is there. we just got to persevere and be thankful for whatever takes place, because God knows. And that's the best I could do. I wish I was good at this stuff. My life would be different if I was good at this stuff. What I want to do is not give up. And when I'm praying, as I have a number of things over a long period of time on things that are very close to me that are really important, I am not going to give up. James does say you pray, you, 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 you have—here's how he puts it—you have not because you ask not. Now, some do ask, but ask with wrong motives. That's another issue. But a lot of times we have not because we ask not. And in my own wrestling with God in prayer on things that are really substantive in my life, I've said to God, it will never— be said of me regarding these things that I have not asked. Now, if you're willing, you could do it. I know you can do anything. I don't know if you're willing, but I'm going to keep annoying you on these things in some of these cases until my dying breath. Now, it may be that these prayers get answered after I'm gone, after I have shuffled off the mortal coil, and I'm done with the slings and the arrows of outrageous misfortune, to quote Hamlet. Maybe. Uh, Some prayers I'm praying are the kind of thing that cannot be answered in the next life. They are prayers about this life. So I don't know what God's up to, but I know what my responsibility is, is to press on, keeping alert to it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Okay, let's uh, let's take a break here, and uh, we'll be back in a few more moments with more of your open mic calls. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. 
Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. If someone were to go back in time to 1946 and stop the RSV Bible translation team from using the word homosexuals in the Bible for the first time, how would that change the future? What would the Bible's teaching on marriage, homosexuality, and sexual ethics look like today? We'll find out my answer in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on iTunes, Spotify, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. Okay, uh, looking over at these uh, open mic calls, um, let's just see here. Um, let's. Uh, I have one here by Stephen, a minute and 38 seconds. You want to find that one? It's about UFOs. But, um, and there's been more chatter about that uh, of late. Incidentally, we are doing open mic calls here, and just to let you know what those are, if you're not familiar with them, uh, these are when people can call in on a line or on the computer and offer their question, even though I'm not there. So when I am here and they're not there, I can still hear what they have to say. And there's no interaction with the caller, like often might be the case if you actually call the line. But it also means you can call, get a question asked, and eventually, (laughs) we've got a lot here, eventually we'll get to your questions, and uh, probably some I I just can't do because I I can't answer them. I don't even know how to deal with some of these questions. Um, They're good ones, and they're just beyond my ken. But uh, in any event, it gives me an opportunity to take a live, a quasi-live call and then respond to it, even though, um, you know, people don't want to wait in line or whatever, not getting calls in, or I'm off schedule in, in doing a show. Okay, so let's, uh, let's hear what Stephen uh, has to say here. Hey, Greg. My question regards the topic of aliens and demons, whether there might be a physical component to the UFO phenomenon and what that would imply about the demonic interpretation. Though it's currently up in the air about whether or not this phenomenon has a physical dimension to it, my assessment of David Grush, as well as the testimonies of other witnesses, has led me to believe that there might be. And that initially disturbed me, as I'd assumed that that would entail an extraterrestrial origin, which I reject. However, a closer reading of scripture has also led me to believe that physical manifestation is fully within the capacity of angelic beings. 
Hebrews 13.2, for instance, implies that believers may have ordinary physical interactions with people who turn out to be angels. And this is further supported by an episode in Genesis 19.1-3, where angels are shown to be able to eat, implying that they had physical bodies and not merely appearances of such. Moreover, in Exodus 7, the Egyptian sorcerers are able to manifest what seems to be a live biological snake, which is then physically consumed by Moses' snake. All of these incidents lead me to believe that it is fully within the capacity of angelic beings to manifest complex physical reality, up to and including biological creatures. Therefore, it seems to be plausible to me that were we to discover either complex aircraft or supposed alien bodies, this can potentially also be explained on the basis of demonic physical manifestation. Hmm. Does that seem plausible to you as well? Thanks for taking my question. Well, Stephen, you've asked a really good question and done a lot of homework. Uh, you done looks like you've done all the hard work on my behalf because uh, you've thought about this a bit more than I have. I, I actually was at this time last year I did filming for a documentary on UFOs, uh, but I was asked more philosophical, theological questions. I had actually done something like this a number of years ago working with Hugh Ross, and the documentary was also made, there was a book by the same title as the documentary, and it's called uh, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men. Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men. And uh, uh, my job was with the experts gathered around, which I was not a number. <laughs> I, uh, I was to guide the conversation in a particular way, so I was kind of like the discussion leader of that group of thoughtful scientists on this issue. And the understanding I had back then, and this was probably at least 15 years ago, maybe 20, that I did that event, I did that documentary, and then this recent one, the, no, the last one, I, my understanding was that the physical evidence is lacking. All right? Even though there were, there were you know, places, uh, the ground that was burnt um, or plowed up, there was there were no artifacts there were there were no pieces of things that were left behind from alleged aliens now that was my understanding 20 years ago and when i talked with the filmmakers this time the people who are the writers and producers and whatever not just people who ran the camera the people who are in the know about this material they told me it's still the same thing that that the physical artifacts have not been forthcoming. Now, that to me was significant, because if these very real occurrences are um, demonic by nature, well, demons are not physical. And so if they, if they make kinds of appearances uh, and, and manifestations of, of, of apparently physical things, that are not themselves physical, they are not going to stay around as an artifact to be examined. Okay? And that's the last that I heard about this. Now, there, I know there's a lot of talk about UFOs now and about, uh, and, and Stephen, you mentioned a few authors that I'm not familiar with because this is, just isn't my field. Um, and it might be that they've come across more stuff. Okay? So then the question is, if there is... If there are artifacts, now what? What do we make of that? And I think you have offered a rationale that is plausible, that even 
um, spirit, even demonic beings or spiritual beings of some sort, could produce physical artifacts. And I think the one that's most, I think, clever as a biblical example is the one from Exodus, where the magicians, the Egyptian magicians, were able to produce a snake too, a real snake, so real it could be eaten. And by the way, that's King Cobras are snakes that eat other snakes, just FYI. I actually did some searching on YouTube about King Cobras, because I lived in Thailand and there are King Cobras, there are lots of Cobras. I've never seen a, a cobra in the wild. I have seen banded crates that were crushed in the highway, and I'd seen those are poisonous. And I've seen I've seen living, had some encounters with some uh, green pit vipers, but no cobras. But these things are pretty amazing. That's just off topic. And uh, <laughs> when I started looking at YouTube, all of a sudden, you know how it works. All these other snake things come up. All these big giant snake things come up, and uh, especially king cobras. But yeah, so you can have snakes eat other snakes, and it seems like you can't eat a figment. You eat an artifact, or you eat a snake that's meat. That's what went on there. That's my sense. So it does seem there can be artifacts, even though the beings are spiritual. All right. Now, there, there are other elements that are involved in this discussion, though. And uh, that I think do not bode well for the alien interpretation of these sightings of these these UFOs, or they don't call them that anymore. They call them something else now. UFOs. Amy knows? UAPs. Unidentified aerial performances. No? Okay. Well, it's something else now. It's a little slicker. UFOs sounds like science fiction. Now they changed the acronym. But it amounts to the same thing. Yes. Do UFOs exist? Yes. There are flying objects that are unidentified. <laughs> but uh, there are a whole bunch that seem to be unexplained by natural phenomena or natural explanations. And so there's there's an issue. And this has just recently been become a much bigger deal because apparently the government is giving, getting in saying, yeah, we got stuff. Well, I don't know. We'll see. However, the problem of it being an alien or aliens is there, there's travel problems, there's location difficulties. How do they even find us? You know, we're a small speck of nothing a long way from anything. And we don't put out signals that they're going to be able to get from any distance away. And there's no close candidates for real life, complex life that can travel like this. And it, the travel takes time. <laughs> and there's lots of dangers to that travel, and a lot of physical problems, okay, that are real problems for intergalactic tra travel. And uh, so those are some thoughts on that. Uh, not sure. Maybe. And I think you've done a good job of looking at some of the options and thinking about some of the options. We'll just, time will tell. One of the things that I brought up when I was being interviewed for this documentary is that uh, what what would happen if an alien appeared and and said, okay, well, you Christians are wrong, and God doesn't exist, or he's different than what you say he is, or something like that. Then what? There you go. You got an alien. Well, my question is, why should I believe the alien? 
because he's really, really, really smart. Well, there's all kinds of really, really, really smart human beings that believe the same thing, that God doesn't exist, and I don't believe them either, because it's not a matter of being really, really, really smart. Here's what the, the issue is, the reasons. The reasons. There are very particular reasons why theists, thoughtful theists, believe in God. And they can articulate those reasons, and many have, including me and a bunch of colleagues. And not just now, but for the hundreds of years, going all the way back almost a thousand years to Thomas Aquinas. These are smart people. They have good reasons. You can't just ignore the reasons because some smart something from somewhere said no. You got to look at the reasons and the rationale. And that's always the case. By the way, that is the heart of the Rhodes Scholar tactic. If you read the tactics book, there's a tactic called Rhodes Scholar. And my point there is, what if really, really, really smart people, really educated people, disagree with our view about something? Now what? They're so smart. Maybe. Probably, in many cases. Doesn't matter. Smarts aren't what matters. Arguments are what matter. Reasons are what matter. Evidences are what matter. That's it. And so the Rhodes Scholar tactic simply means that when you are confronted with, say, expert testimony against your view, you don't want to know just what the testimony against your view is. Now you're informed. You need to be educated. Why is that testimony reliable? Why is it reliable? That's the question. And that's the same question I would ask of an ET. Thank you for that question. Uh, do we have time for a break right now? And then we'll come back to another here on our open mic calls on Standard Reasons. Stay with us. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR outpost. STR outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. 
And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. Okay, I realize I mentioned I have open mic calls. I didn't tell you how you could do them. <laughs> uh, you can go to our website, our homepage at str.org, and under podcasts, it says live broadcast, and there's a link there, and you can follow the prompts, or you can simply dial 857-DIAL-STR, D-I-A-L-S-T-R. I never liked that. It's too hard for me to find the numbers in the letters. So I'll just give you the numbers, 857 857- Three four two five seven eight seven. All right, eight five seven three four two five seven eight seven. Though most people seem to go to the website, that's I guess the most fun. So uh, now I have a question uh, about one of my favorite topics, which is uh, relativism. And this is Ethan. Oh wait a minute, uh, that's not it. Uh, oh, what happened to it? Maybe. Oh, it is Ethan but a different Ethan question. Um, on page four for me, 219. You got that one? Hi, Mr. Kukul. I'm currently a university student, and I've been having a lot of philosophical debates with people. Mm, good. And I noticed that there's this really common argument that keeps popping up, especially with the atheists, of moral relativism. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea that right and wrong are not objective, and are instead uh, relative to the person or perhaps the culture that they come from. Mm -hmm. And I just want to ask for advice on how to approach this topic and how to perhaps convince them that there is indeed objective morality. Mm -hmm. So I've read Mere Christianity and C.S. Lewis, one of the first arguments he lists is the idea of a moral law where Mm -hmm. everybody has an ought to do what is right and what is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was a pretty good way of arguing for objective morality, but I also have seen that uh, people who believe in moral relativism have a few ways of explaining this morality, explaining that why they have this ought to do what is right and what is wrong. Uh, The two most common ways that I've seen is that either they use a societal approach where they say uh, what is good, what what is good is what's good for society. So perhaps stealing is bad because if you steal, your society will fall apart and crumble. And the reason that we have an ought to do this is because if we lived in a society where perhaps stealing was acceptable, then that society would have fallen apart a long time ago. So everybody alive now in a society has certain rules that they follow because without them, they wouldn't exist or something mm-hmm. along those lines. Mm-hmm. The second common reason for this, a second common argument for this is the uh, survival of the fittest or the Darwinistic approach, which is... Uh, what we believe is good and what be- what we believe is right is just what is most beneficial to our survival. So perhaps uh, stealing food is detrimental to our survival because while it does give you nutrition in the short term, you create enemies and that can be detrimental. And I just want to ask for advice on how to approach these topics. Hmm. Uh, I feel like if I am able to convince people that moral morality is objective, then the next steps of pushing for, oh, then a God must exist, that that comes a lot easier. Hmm. Um, thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome, Ethan. And um, these are—I uh, love these questions. I've worked on this material a lot. I wrote a book called Relativism with uh, Frank Beckwith, and uh, we cover some of these issues there. Um, what 
surprises me is a bit, continues to surprise me, is the way um, how easily people are satisfied. Okay? Now, I think that the moral relativism issue is sometimes hard to sink your teeth into. And this is why I spend a whole chapter in the new book, Street Smarts, dealing with that. And the title of the chapter is, Can You Be Good Without God? And of course, this is the claim that you could be good after a fashion, given one understanding of the goodness project, um, without God. In fact, you could be good given two understandings about the goodness of project goodness project without God and you've just offered both of those Ethan and um, I want to tell you the uh, let me just tell you the simplest way uh, to to and this is the way I argue um, most aggressively in street smarts on this issue the simplest way of making the case that relativism of any sort is false as a way of explaining morality. Now, keep in mind, relativism is a means or a way of trying to explain what the moral project is all about. <clears throat> Francis Schaeffer noted that we all participate in moral motions. That means he's not giving any material substance at this point to morality. He's just saying, in a, the for, in a formal sense, we, are, we, we speak in moral categories, and we talk in moral terms, and we act according to moral convictions. So we have these moral motions that are going on, all right? And the question is, now, what is that all about? What's going on there? Now, what the relativist is going to say is that What's going on there is just a is a either a evolved. I'm not. I didn't even want to say instinct because an instinct is a very precise thing, but it is a behavior and belief. Notice that morality isn't just about behavior; it is beliefs about behavior, and these and these are very important distinctions. Okay, these are beliefs about behaviors that cause us to choose some behaviors rather than others. And the causing of that is to benefit—and this is the second point here, I'm taking them in reverse order—is to benefit survival. Now, strictly speaking, Darwinism isn't about survival. It's about reproduction. Um, Amoebas don't (laughs) survive long. But they sure reproduce fast. Okay? It's about getting one's genes into the next generation successfully. It is not about how long that generation survives. All right? But on this view, this process of Darwinian evolution has created beliefs in our mind that we have about actions such that we do the good things so that we can more effectively get our genes into the next generation. Now, the question I have to ask is, um, for one, how does Darwinian evolution produce beliefs? Because morality is a set of beliefs about actions. It is not actions. It's beliefs about actions. 
So how does evolution produce beliefs? They don't even know how evolution produced consciousness. In fact, they can't even—it's it, so bad for them that Daniel Dennett, one of the new atheists, said that the consciousness must be an illusion. Okay, so how is—what I'm going to need at this point, and I do detail this in the story of reality, I'm going to need more detail about how a Darwinian methodology can produce the beliefs that we're talking about. And if this is going to be the explanation of morality somebody offers, they've got to explain how that can work. How does evolution produce beliefs that benefit our survival? And by the way, evolution doesn't, doesn't choose for true beliefs. It chooses for survive for reproduction, effective reproduction. Okay, that's a question that needs to be answered. Okay, um, and um, the 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 broad issue, though, apart from this explanation that's offered, that doesn't seem to explain anything because you have to explain the beliefs, which can't be explained by Darwinian evolution. Here's the question that I ask. This is the quick route. Is there evil in the world? People complain about the problem of evil. And here's what they say. How could God be real if there is so much evil in the world? Notice the way they put it, evil in the world. They're not saying, how could things happen that I don't like? That's relativism. They're asking about things that shouldn't happen. That's objectivism. So do they believe that there's evil in the world? Because these two characterizations of morality, of these two, neither can explain objective evil. Why not? Because they're relativistic explanations. That's, the, that's your point, Ethan. You know that. So in order to be a relativist, you have to deny that there is a problem of evil. Now, one thing that everybody knows, no matter where they lived or when they lived, is that something's wrong with the world. There's evil in the world. If relativism is true, there's no evil in the world. Now, these are characterizations about how relativism can accomplish the illusion of objective morality, either through Darwinian evolution or social contract. But it, it doesn't—it it, it ends up denying evil in the world. And that's the first thing I'd want any relativist to see. You realize then that on this view, there can be no real evil in the world. Rape is not evil. Racism is not evil. Bigotry is not evil. We just falsely believe it's evil because of some magic of evolution that's created a belief that helps us to get our—believe this so that we get our genes into the next generation. Now, that's a bit to swallow, right? you got to bite the bullet that there is no evil when it seems clear to everybody that there is real objective evil in the world. If there is real evil in the world, then relativism of any sort is false. The problem immediately that I saw with the first option, morality is just what's good for society, is morality is about what's good, right? So here's the statement. What's good is about what's good for society. If you're going to define something, you can't use the word that you're defining in your definition because you don't get off the ground. Morality, that is, the good, is about what's good for society. But you haven't told us what the good is. What is good for society? Hitler had one view. 
what was good for society was to get rid of every single Jew from the planet. And he got pretty close to doing it. That was good for them, their society. It turns out that the idea of good for society is a very, very malleable, unclear concept, and it depends on what society you're looking at and what the individuals want out of that society. It doesn't provide a standard for all people, all humans. And if there's not a standard for all humans, then there can't be a broken standard for all humans, which results in the problem of evil. So those are two big problems. The first one is is a tautology. What's good is what's good. That's number one. That doesn't take you anywhere. Even by calling it what's good for society, that doesn't help you. It's too vague. The second one is morality is just what's good for survival. That means Darwinism has created beliefs just so you can get your genes into the next generation. Now, it seems to me that would make rape good on that definition, not bad. How does the standard Darwinian model create beliefs when they can't even have it create consciousness that is the seat of the beliefs in question? There you go. Something to chew on. Thank you so much for the call, Ethan. Greg Cole will stand to reason. Give him heaven. Bye-bye now.